All right, hello, welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. I'm Jason Napolitano, and on the line I have Mr. Chris Sheridan. What's going on, Chris? It's a mystery. It's all one giant mystery. <laughs> and here's the beauty of that. Today we're yeah. going to try to shed some light on that mystery, aren't we? We are, and the great thing about a mystery is you don't have to solve it. Nope. You just have to approach it, experience it, and see what happens after that so exactly and that is the beauty of the mystery in uh in a spiritual sense you know i think sometimes we get the idea that the, a mystery you know in the material sense is something that needs to be solved it's something that needs to be dug down into and figured out and we've got to you know we've got to get this you know formula for it and you know it's it's x plus y plus z equals this and you know you've got to have it nailed down the beauty of a mystery in in a spiritual sense or in a mystical sense is that it's usually contradictory and it's usually something that has to be understood on a heart and mind level simultaneously would you agree with that yeah yeah great so, well that's that's why it sometimes eludes us and be can become so baffling and mysterious is a lot of times we approach things like through one or the other exactly. or there's a conflict between the two my head says this my heart says that and you know that's not really helping so no yeah. Funny, uh, approach i like that funny we should mention that because yeah. that's actually in our topic today yeah uh we are talking uh we're speaking from the initiates of the flame which is an early manly hall pamphlet 1922 right yes he was 21 okay so this is some of his earlier work this is pre-secret teachings manly hall which is some of my favorite stuff and you like this stuff as well don't you i do all right. So There's something this, about his perspective as somebody, as only somebody like in their twenties can do. It just so happened he was, you know, a great thinker and, and writer and speaker on, on this stuff. But it uh, still contains some of the idealism, uh, as well as that, yeah, that confidence maybe that you have in at that point. In your yeah, life. and the and the boldness you have when you're when you're twenties yeah. is a boldness too, right? So. Um, we're here each week on the Cosmic Eye Show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all who are uh, donating to us. We appreciate that. We're at anchor.fm slash Cosmic Eye if you'd like to make a donation. Chris's book is The Spirit in the Sky, available on Amazon. Mine is If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, also on Amazon. Uh, and you can check us out at CosmicEye.org. We've got a lot of great things going on there, so please do check that out, CosmicEye.org. We've got uh, some beautiful tarot bags that we've been putting up, and we're we're working on new decks and we've actually even got a, a new Kickstarter project and there's a link to that on the uh, CosmicEye.org website uh, for this great historical deck we're calling the Devil's Picture Books Tarot. So uh, it's got 600 years of tarot history in one deck. It's a very cool deck that we've, uh, we've put together. So check that out. All right, so on to the mystery of the alchemist. So this is chapter three from Initiates of the Flame. This book, uh, is interesting. Initiates of the Flame, as we said, is, is one of his earlier pieces. Um, one of the things it really lays out, and it does this really nicely, is this idea of the ageless wisdom, the idea of the golden chain, the idea of the perennial wisdom. You know, he was a, he was a great believer in that idea that there is a universal truth, a universal religion, which exists behind all of these sort of exoteric religions that we're participating in that come from a much earlier time and place 
uh, of time uh, and a much uh, place of greater greater wisdom than maybe we possess today, but it was handed down through these initiates and so on. So basically this idea of the initiates of the flame is that this lamp of knowledge, this flame of knowledge is passed down from generation to generation, but it was also alive in different times and different places. And he's highlighting some of those. So uh, not to kind of belabor the overview of this thing, but he, he talks about the fire upon the altar. That's one of the chapters and that's kind of a fire worship thing, sacred city of Shambhala. So he gets into some of the ideas of uh, uh, what they called at that time, Lamaism, which is what we know as Tibetan Buddhism now. Uh, the Mystery of the Alchemist, which is one we're going to talk about. He talks about the initi Egyptian initiate Ark of the Covenant, Knights of the Holy Grail, and the Mysteries uh, and Mystery of the Pyramid. So they're really uh, cool subjects, all of these great, great subjects for discussions. But we chose this um, Mystery of the Alchemist, and it really, um, it really kind of grabbed both of us this week, didn't it, Chris, this particular subject? Well, it did because it... I mean, for me, it's it, there's lots to be discussed, and there has been much written on alchemy and what it means and the history of this and what some of the procedures were and uh, these great drawings uh, from medieval times and how culturally uh, it has been such a, a big influence over the centuries. Uh, but this is the mystery of the alchemist. This is this is one who does the alchemy. So who is this person? Why are they doing this? What are they doing? And what does that mean to you? Uh, so it's, it's a great perspective or a take on uh, what is a huge subject, but he narrows it down to, you know, the alchemist, like what's, what's behind that? And, and how are you with an alchemist? Yeah, exactly. And that was the big one that got me uh, is that I began to kind of think about my, my own life and my own self as an alchemist, you know, and I don't, you know, practice any kind of alchemy per se, but in a sense, you know, I do and we all do. Um, we may not be working with, you know, experiments and test tubes and, you know, retorts and pelicans and flames and burners and all these different chemicals and so on, which, you know, that's, I think, most people's idea of what, what an alchemist is. But really in this, um, in this book, I mean, he does talk a little bit about the history of alchemy. Obviously, it was during the Middle Ages, and it was at a time, you know, alchemy was at a time when you could not really practice uh, a lot of these scientific operations openly, and you also could not practice any sort of spiritual thinking or practices uh, openly because the church was down on both things, both on science and on any other kind of uh, religious uh, ideas or doctrine besides its own. The, the, uh, you know, people were tortured and, and burned at the stake and put on racks and all of these terrible things at this time. So uh, this was something that was done in, in secret for the most part and done in highly coded ways. So, you know, there were sort of, you know, Jung points out in a lot of his work that, you know, alchemy was primarily an early form of psychology and spiritual transformation and so on. Whereas, um, you know, a lot of people have the idea that, it, you know, alchemy is just a precursor to what became chemistry today. I think both things are true, don't you? I mean, I think- I do, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, and yet alchemy and being an alchemist uh, uses those science, you know, chemical compounds and uh, amalgams and yeah. products that are created for mixing things and heating them and doing all these things. Uh, the psychological um, you know, metaphor 
that you're using the laboratory of the mind and you're cooking your thoughts and your experiences and subjecting them to new ideas and hopefully transmuting them, making them higher, making them more golden than from the older leaden original state. Um, but it's also something kind of more, something maybe wholly different or wholly its own, let's call it that. Wholly its own, yeah. And I think even those folks who were practicing alchemy with a more scientific bent at that time had a spiritual viewpoint, had a spiritual outlook on what they were doing, as opposed to today where uh, science is supposed to be free from those sorts of sub subjective viewpoints. You're supposed to kind of disengage yourself and look at things completely objectively. Uh, they had no such ideas about science at that time. That was not until much later. Uh, they, they, you know, the precursor of that certainly was what they were doing. But, you know, and that's where Jung points out that, you know, really, even during their experiments, what was going on was they were learning, you know, more and more about themselves and more and more about their own psychology because they were projecting their own psychic contents onto those experiments, you know, into that test tube, onto those chemicals. And that's why they have such wildly creative symbolic imagery. I mean, things called the red dragon, the green dragon, you know, the, the, the heavens do, and, you know, the king and the queen, and, you know, and then the, you know, the different processes, you know, mortificatio and sublimatio and all these, these really vivid um, artistic and symbolic descriptions of all these processes. And you're like, well, they're just, you know, burning some chemicals. You know what I mean? And so it's like, it, clearly there's there's multiple levels of things going on. So I think it supports the idea that both things were actually going on. Both a spiritual and transformative psychology was being born in a completely different sort of religious viewpoint than the one that existed in the in the accepted church of the time, but also the very the beginnings of uh, a practice of science as its own kind of thing unto itself, right? So... But what's interesting is if you look at that, that is the goal of alchemy itself, because you have this idea, you have this idea of these, these three, three qualities, these three qualities. So you have mercury, sulfur, and salt, mercury, sulfur, and salt. And so the idea is that sulfur is sort of this passion, this fiery desire nature. It's what you might call the spiritual side of things, the spirit side. The salt is, is analogous in, in a sense to, to the body, to inertia, to kind of, you know, materiality. And then you've got the, the, the mercury or what's also called the quicksilver in some places is the sort of intermediary. And that's the actual consciousness or, you know, mental process or intelligence of the alchemist, uh, his or herself. Uh, so him or herself. Um, not his or her. Um, so that's, uh, you know, so that's, that's this thing. So the actual act of alchemy, you know, and I'm going to read this because this is an interesting paragraph and Manley Hall puts it so beautifully. So I'm just going to read this whole paragraph. Uh, man has been an alchemist from the time when he first raised himself and with the powers long latent pronounced himself as human experiences are the chemicals of life, which the philosopher is experimenting with nature is the great book whom whose secrets he seeks to understand through her own wondrous symbolism, his own spiritual flame 
is the lamp by which he reads, and without this, the printed pages mean nothing to him. His own body is the furnace in which he prepares the philosopher's stone. His sense and organs are the test tubes, and incentive is the flame from the burners. Salt, sulfur, and mercury are the chemicals of his craft. According to the ancient philosophers, salt was of the earth earthy, sulfur was a fire, which was spirit, while mercury was nothing, only a messenger like the winged Hermes of the Greeks. His color is purple, which is the blending of the red and the blue, the blue of the spirit and the red of the body. That's Hermes color. His color is purple, the blending of red and blue, the blue of spirit and the red of the body. So exactly what we're talking about. It's an interesting thing then that the, in the present day, we have two different things. We have, you know, we have a, we have science, which is thought of as being objective and, you know, real and, and something truthful. And then we have spirituality, which is, you know, something kind of mushy and indefinable and kind of like subjective and something that's only inside of us. And really the goal of alchemy is to bring those two things together in essence, body and spirit together, right? The head and the heart, it goes all throughout our experience, uh, heaven and earth, like you were saying, spirit and matter. Uh, what's happened culturally is that these have been separated. That, you know, what is, you're talking about what is scientific, uh, is scientific truth, no matter what you feel about it or what God you pray to or don't. Um, and on the other hand, we have spirit, which doesn't rely on science for anything. It's all metaphysical and airy and amorphous and all this stuff. Um, it's important that they be separated in the sense that they are distinguishable from each other, uh, not separated in that they can exist without each other or somehow at odds with each other. Yes. Um, it's great to have scientific understanding that's you know, on that level because you can really count on that and to have this spiritual sense and this passion, this fire, this life energy that runs through it kind of gives meaning uh, to this cold scientific fact. Mm -hmm. And that is the role of the alchemist as you're bringing these things together uh, in the human body, in the human being, that is our being, uh, it's our head and our heart. It's our thoughts uh, and our feelings uh, that can often be at odds with each other. Um, sometimes one can hijack the other one or convince the one to do something it maybe wouldn't ordinarily do. Uh, the goal is to bring these things together. And that comes with an understanding that these are different ways of looking at things. If you look at something through just an analytical sense, or you look at something through, you know, an emotional feeling sense, you might look at a thing in two very, very different ways. Mm -hmm. And instead of having these compete with each other, this alchemical transmutation brings them together, not mush them together where they're indistinguishable, uh, but like this color scheme, you know, it, the red and the blue, then be, you know, come this purple thing, or this purple is involved uh, with these two separate things. It's this, um, you know, the mortar between the bricks, and that's at where the term I'll end on this for now. The quicksilver. It's not that it's fast. Um, it's this, you know, quickening. It can bring something together, but like mortar between the bricks, it's something that kind of holds things together. In the sense, it runs through everything, this thread uh, that can, you know, bind them together, uh, have them meet like a handshake, you know, where uh, they come together in the spirit 
of cooperation instead of competition. Speaking of the handshake, he has that great uh, image of, uh, it's a Masonic image and it's a, it's a pentagram, it's a star, a five-pointed star. And in the middle of it, there's two hands shaking, uh, two hands shaking. And, and then below it, he says, this picture known to all Masons is that of the soul. It's the star of Bethlehem, which heralds the coming of the Christ within. The two clasped hands are the spirit and body united in the marriage of the lamb. It is from the union of the higher with the lower that the Christ is born, the Christ within. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul said, right? Um, so, you know, it's an interesting thing when you start breaking these down. I was trying to think of something kind of a, like a practical example, because it's easy to, to, to kind of go off into the abstract realm and say the higher and the lower, and you know, make these sort of references to things, or it's like, you know, the heart and the, and the mind need to be combined together. So, you know, to kind of, to kind of ground that, I'm going to give you an example that I can think of. Uh, and if you've got something, do so as well after uh, I come up with this. But the uh, so so sometimes let's say that there's a, let's say there's a struggle in your life, and you know there's an idea that like for example like I need to make a living. So you're young and you're trying to figure out what you want to do. So you start looking around at careers, and you you know you kind of like investigate. Maybe you read some of these books or you look online at different things that pay well and so on. Uh, maybe you you know you look at some of uh, of the ideas surrounding you know what is this job or this career or this you know type of business entail. That would be using using the the mind. So you know using using the mind is sort of this practical analytical logical side of ourselves, which is very valuable in you know kind of analyzing and discerning things. Um, but, you know, the challenge with just using the mind is that you might go like, well, I'm going to be a doctor because that's a highly respected profession and you make a lot of money and, you know, doctors get respect and, you know, and, and, and this sort of thing. And, you know, I've watched Grey's Anatomy for so many years and, you know, that looks like a great job to me. But you have no training in biology, you have no scientific background, you have no aptitude for such a thing, and you don't even, you know, and you're, you're faint at the sight of blood, and, you know, you're squeamish. But you think, well, I've got to be a doctor. Well, that doesn't line up. It doesn't line up. So the soul side of things is, okay, well, what works for me, who I actually am as an individual human being, and, and what is in my heart, what do I really like to do? And then you start to investigate that and you're like, well, wait a minute, I really actually do want to help in the world of healing. So, you know, I do want to help people. I like that idea. And then you kind of fish around and you, you, know, you think more and then you realize like at some point, maybe you start reading about psychology and you're like, well, oh, there's a whole nother field that I actually am suited to. This is something I can help heal people and I do something that I'm, that's, you know, suited to me and it, you know, it satisfies my soul. Now that would be an idea of, of the heart and mind working together. You know, your purpose is to have a good career, let's say, and you, you know, you want the sort of respect of being a doctor. And then you found something that you actually can do and are good at, you know, maybe you're, you're a skilled communicator and you enjoy, you know, enjoy working with people and solving problems and so boom. You know, so I mean, that's kind of a simplistic thing, but that's that is an example. I want, you know, it's a concrete example of how the heart and mind might work together. Now, of course, you abstract that out and you think about larger things, larger issues, you know, 
spiritual issues and you know bigger bigger things like that and so on you can apply those ideas to those as well but that's one one kind of concrete idea that you can look at do you have anything to add to that or do you want to kind of move on or well i think we can you know touch on it as we go um because like i said you know those are two different it's almost like two different senses in your body you know you mm. might hear things a certain way, but you might see something else. You know, there, there are two different ways of, of looking at you know, or approaching the world. Um, in our inner lives, we have our head and our heart, and that's how we process uh, the things that go on all around us and, and inside us. And, you know, you could say that, well, the head is what I should do and the heart is what I want to do. Uh, sometimes they can uh, run up against each other, but, uh, I think if you can find common ground, and this is this quicksilver that, that bridges these together, um, that although they may look at something in different ways and seem like they come up with different conclusions or have a different take on it, um, it's just that they're looking at it from different angles. And if there's a common ground, they can both be satisfied. And that's this merging them together. Uh, it's kind of taking the best of both. Yeah, when it comes to if it, if it is making a decision, something that satisfies both the head and the heart, uh, they don't have to be talking against each other, um, even though a lot of times it can seem that way. But it's because they need to. You need to have those two points of view. Uh, the trouble and difficulty <laughs> lies in when you squash one uh, and then one takes over. Uh, the heart can be very impractical. Uh, it can just, you know, just run and play and want to go off and do something and not be too concerned about the consequences, perhaps. Uh, the analytical mind can be, you know, sometimes strict or, uh, well, don't do that. Or if you do this, this may not happen. Uh, it can be restrictive in some of the more spirited um, uh, impulses, I guess, that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, the goal is then is to have enough of the mind uh, where it's it's practical and it's safe relatively and constructive, uh, but it doesn't lose that fire, that passion, that freedom of expression, and uh, and just wanting to get out there and and you know do the immediate thing without that spontaneity, you know, without thinking, overthinking it, you know, to have that spontaneity because both are really really needed. Yeah, it takes precedent over the other. You just have this imbalance, so it's it's really bringing them into balance. It's um, you know, that's well, a great point. I was and as you <laughs> takes takes some doing, but that's the that's the work of the alchemist. You know, you're uniting these opposites, bringing them both to bear um, on your life and the world in which you live, uh, and, and benefiting from the best of both. Absolutely, that's a great point. Uh, suddenly, when you were talking about that balancing, I was thinking about the, uh, you know, obviously I'm doing a lot of tarot lately. I work on tarot. And so there's a card in tarot called uh, Temperance. Key number 14 is Temperance. And you see, uh, you see uh, uh, a sort of angelic looking figure pouring, pouring out some liquids. And um, there's, there's, a, there's this, it's, it's a card of alchemy. There's a card of alchemy. And it's a balancing. There's a fire and a water. And so those are those two ideas of balancing that fire and and, and water balancing the um, passion uh, with, you know, with sort of practicality or with a sort of, um, you know, emotional content or so on that, you know, can bring those, brings the two things together, 
there's a balancing and equilibration process that goes on that, that allows a, a, a third thing to occur, a, a sort of a transmutation to occur. And that's, you know, I want to kind of get into this to kind of move, move forward a little bit. That's a, a, big, a big part of the, the process of alchemy is the idea of turning base metals, oftentimes called lead or, or different subjects or the prima materia, prima materia, uh, turning this into gold. So there's a transmutation that's sought. Uh, the other idea is the, uh, the philosopher's stone. You're creating the philosopher's stone. And these are all kind of the, the same ideas. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that it's, and Manley Hall points this out uh, pretty extensively in this, in this short little section that is this that we're talking about. It really, really hits hard on this point is that uh, the transmutation is something that that takes place. It's not um, something is created out of nothing. It's something is created out of something. Something is turned into something else. And that's the interesting thing you have to think about in this idea of transmutation is that when um, when you're trying to combine these different parts of yourself or the heart and the mind or, you know, the above and the below or the inner and the outer, however you want to look at it. Um, there's also this idea that all of this, all of our experiences are uh, just different aspects of the one thing. And they talk about that in the hermetic sciences, the one thing, that everything is just an adaptation of the one thing. And this idea really is that there's just this, there's this universal spirit, this universal agent of, of which everything is composed. And really all we're doing is kind of you know, tr moving those around. That's the idea of transmutation or changing something that already exists into something else. You know, we're never creating anything as human beings. You know, we're never creating anything. There's a one consciousness and a one sort of universal energy, a one power that we're working with. And we're sort of using our powers of concentration to, uh, to focus down and to transmute things. But we never, we never make anything out of nothing. And, and he, you know, Manley Hall goes to a great, great length to, to, to remind us that this process, you know, this process is, 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 a, is, is again, it's a process of transmutation. So it's not as if you're going to, like you said, you're not going to throw something out and then put something new in. You know, you're going to take the material that you have, which is the material of your life, your experiences, your particular likes and dislikes, your particular hangups, your particular skills, all this stuff, and you're going to transmute that into the Philosopher's Stone. That's your job as an alchemist. You know, you're going to turn that into gold. You're going to take the lead of experience, you know, the cards you're dealt with in life, and they may be challenging, some of them. You know, most of the great people in history have had great challenges. Um, you know, you look and see it Beethoven was deaf and you see that Edison only had you know a few years of schooling and you know you've looked at all these people's you know difficulties and challenges and you know and things that they you know people have done you look at what what Gandhi did with his life um, you know with with you know a, a fairly you know simple man of peace I mean he was an intelligent man and you know he had a lawyer's background and so on and he was you know he was educated but it was when he simplified his life that he was able to transmute and really change the course of India, um, you know. But you build, you build that that out of the materials and the experiences that you have. 
it doesn't come from somewhere else. It's a, it's a transmutation process. And that's why this idea of alchemy is such a powerful one, because it's like you start wherever you are with whatever you have and you turn that into gold. That's the idea. And that's truly inspiring when you think about that, don't you think? Well, it is because there's nothing else you need. You need you and you need to you know, elevate your consciousness increase your vibration, uh, your awareness, your dedication. But as far as the stuff to work with, it's whatever you have. And that's for everybody being their own individual alchemist in their own lives. Uh, the stuff to work with is already there. There's nothing outside of you. Uh, now it's becoming, it's like having an instrument. Um, once you have, you know, if it's an instrument or maybe it's your voice, what you need then is the skill and the dedication to improve your craft or your musicianship or sportsmanship or whatever it is you're trying to do, the equipment is already there. Um, so I think that's encouraging in a way because there's really nothing lacking. And then you can say, well, geez, well, I've, you know, somebody else may have started out in life a little bit higher up or things a little bit easier. They may have more resources. Uh, it might be easier for them to be an alchemist and turn their life into gold. They already were born with a gold spoon in their mouth. And look at my life. I had, you know, humble upbringings or things. Uh, it doesn't matter. Your challenges and your life to you is what you have to work with to make your gold, your philosopher's stone, this elixir of your life. Uh, and somebody else has their own challenges, things maybe you don't know about uh, that may be for them <laughs> difficult as well. So there's really no comparison. Uh, there's no needing to bring something else in. No one is really at a higher or lower uh, vantage point from being able to do this. It's the dedication uh, to use the laboratory of your own life and experience and commune with higher forces and bring these into this craft, this work, uh, to make you a better person and a giver of life when you accomplish the great work it's something to be shared you share the stone you share the elixir of life uh, so that that all may benefit uh, but you start with what you have and whatever it is that you have it's enough it also takes any kind of excuse out of the equation because yeah. you really this says you can't say well I don't have this and I don't have that it's like no you have what you have and that is always enough it's exactly. to set out and do the work absolutely great great way to put that and, you know it kind of harkens back to the idea of the of the title of this of this this book is you know the initiates of the flame the idea is that the you know, the flame is something, you know, Jesus talked about not hiding your, your lamp under a bushel. You know, the idea is that, that you're, you're to share this light, you're to share this wisdom, you're to share your, your gifts and so on. Uh, I want to just read this from the beginning, uh, from the beginning of the section. This isn't the section we're covering specifically, it's at the beginning of the book, but we're, it's, we are the flame-born sons of God, thrown out as sparks from the wheels of the infinite. Around this flame, we have built forms which have hidden our light, but as students, we are increasing this light by love and service until it shall again proclaim us sons of the eternal, S-U-N-S, sons of the eternal. So there's this idea there in that also, uh, kind of by extension, that, you know, we are a, a divine ray of this, you know, this infinite sun. 
you know, we're, we are this light. So our consciousness and that universal consciousness are the same thing. It's just on a kind of a, a smaller level. And that's what we're working towards, finding that unity with that universal sun of consciousness uh, through, through the work that we're doing, through the work that we're doing, but also sharing that light uh, along the way. And then, and then, and realizing, we you know, again, when Manley Hall's talking about, you know, this idea of, of building something out of something, you know, not something out of nothing, transmuting something, you know, what we're transmuting, we're already this, we're already this, this, this consciousness, this divine consciousness, and really it's a power, you know, it's, a, it's a, the transmutation is really a sort of a, a self-realization, self with a capital S, a self-realization so it's not like you're creating something. It's almost like you're uncovering something again and recovering something. You know, that's that philosophical goal. That very good point. That's, I think, a central uh, aspect of Buddhism is that your inner Buddha nature uh, is something that's there. It's already there. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of bringing out, um, which is you don't really need more. You just need to connect more with what it is you have, or the Christ in you, is the hope and glory, as Paul said, or uh, that this inner inner light. Uh, you mentioned the pyramid earlier, and that's what pyramid means: fire in the middle. It's this central sun or solar plexus, you know, this you know part within us uh, that is enlightened. And it may not be the the grand <laughs> light, but it is like as this you know passage you said, you know, it sparks thrown off from the wheels of the infinite. So it's, it's a drop in the ocean and it contains everything that the ocean is um, and connected with that. We're using the, I guess the, uh, the metaphor of, you know, light and flame, uh, but it's in there and it's, you're right. It's a matter of recovering it, uncovering it. Uh, and, and even if you look at some of the more traditional alchemical processes, you're talking about, you know, calcinato, you're gonna burn things off or um, uh, distilling things or you're, um, you're drying things out. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of the work is really getting rid of stuff. Mm -hmm. Just like if you mine ore, uh, you know, you heat it, you boil it, you cook it, you stick it in the furnace and you, you know, wipe off the dross and get rid of the, you know, other chemicals and impurities and things. And then what you're left with then is this pure gold. It was already there. It was just mixed in with a bunch of other stuff. And wow. a lot of these processes are of a stripping away, not adding to something or making something out of nothing. Like, like Manahal makes a big point of, of making clear, uh, but a lot of it's stripping away. And in our own lives, this can be our old beliefs, maybe what uh, the experts <laughs> are telling us, maybe, uh, you know, history, tradition, I'm not saying throw all of that out, uh, but some of those things can be you know, holding us back. It can be keeping us from uh, our own truth. If there's something outside ourselves uh, kind of leading the show or directing us uh, on where to go, this is a turning to your inner light and trusting in that and bringing maybe invisible forces into play and spending less time paying attention to uh, what maybe the world has said, and maybe even some of your own history. If you find yourself at a troublesome part in your life, um, just remember it is your best thinking <laughs> that got you there. 
So maybe that wasn't some of the best thinking. So maybe it's maybe have a new thought. Maybe let some of those old assumptions uh, go, even if they were held in high regard at some point can reach a level in your development where uh, you may need a whole new set of rules to have a new experience with yourself in the world. It's outside, maybe beyond um, what the, the mainstream uh, traditions have, have taught. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I was thinking as you were talking about that, of, um, you know, there's particular times in our lives where you know, these alchemical processes seem more, more relevant and more kind of in our, in our faces, as it were. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, the kind of uh, moving from sort of youth into a sort of maturity or adulthood or, you know, going from, you know, being single into married life or having a child are certainly going to, you know, be these, these times where we're, we're sort of thrown back in on ourselves and so on. Uh, where we're, you know, we're forced to kind of deal with um, different, different issues and so on. Um, midlife is a particularly strong part of our lives where uh, this alchemical information can really help us to, uh, can really help to guide us uh, through the challenges, through the challenges that we may face. Uh, and, you know, he talks about, you know, most of these alchemists, we think of them as being older don't we? We think of them as, you know, having long beards and gray hair and, you know, and, or the, you know, they, we think of them as, an, as older figures, elders, as it were. So this idea of, of midlife and kind of moving into that position of, of becoming an elder, even if that's something symbolic in your life, you know, you could be younger, you know, you could be in your, you know, in your late 20s or early 30s, and, you know, now you're required maybe to come into a different role, that of fatherhood or motherhood, and again, that's, you know, you're, you're sort of becoming an elder, or you're asked to be a manager, let's say, where you work, or you're starting your own business, and now all of a sudden you're in charge. In a sense, you know, that elder energy, that, 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 that alchemist, you know, that wise old alchemist energy is needed, but particularly in midlife, something occurs uh, that Jung called um, an enantiodromia, which is a turning to the opposite. So the first half of our life, generally speaking, uh, is us, you know, kind of figuring out like what we're going to do and, you know, we're navigating relationships and we're trying to create a career for ourselves and a lie, you know, lives for ourselves. And, you know, we're focused on material things and so on, you know, kind of creating the material stuff. Usually the second half of life, is devoted to the inner life, the inner life. So there's a sort of turning in on yourself in a way at midlife that, you know, most people find extremely uncomfortable, hence the idea of the midlife crisis. Um, you know, I think a lot of these ideas are changing because, you know, certainly life doesn't necessarily proceed this way for everyone, but in the you know, general overall scheme of things, you know, as, as you get older, and particularly after 40, 45, 50, you, you, you look at life differently. You just naturally do. There's really, you don't even really have to do anything for that to happen. You can fight it. You can try to fight it. You can buy the Corvette. You know, you can, you can get the 19-year-old girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever you want to do and try to fight it. But it, it happens, it unfolds. And this is where this, you know, this transmutation and these, these ideas of alchemy really come into play. And by the way, uh, not to hint at, you, you know, our 
point you somewhere else, but our, our other, uh, we've done a couple of other uh, great podcasts on this subject. We did one on anatomy of the soul, the, the Edinger book, and you can find that one. And we also did uh, the hermetic marriage. So both of these are kind of similar subjects to the one we're talking about right now. We have an alchemy, another alchemy one as well. Uh, so listen to those if you want more information on this. But, you know, al alchemy in midlife is interesting, isn't it? It's particularly effective at that time in your life. Wouldn't you agree? Well, it is. And to take a historic figure, um, Sir Isaac Newton, who uh, in later in his life, he spent over 20 years um, locked in a laboratory uh, finding uh, the mysteries uh, through alchemy. He was a and got very sick working with, with actual mercury. Um, but that happened in his second half of life. His first half, you know, he developed the theories of uh, motion and gravity and uh, celestial bodies and orbits and uh, published all his great works, um, founding president of the Royal Society um, and uh, you know, great historic figure. Uh, and someone who you think really is, you know, one of the fathers of modern science. You know, a lot of a lot of his uh, theories and uh, accomplishments, you know, are very, you know, much part of our fundamental scientific knowledge today. Uh, that why, how is it, and why is it that somebody of his stature and intelligence and scientific pedigree would lock himself in a basement for twenty years, um, practicing something as silly as alchemy? Uh, so there's a figure who did it later in life in kind of an actual factual sense. Um, but at this turning in is it's, it's necessary. Like you said, you don't even have to try when, you know, the career is either fully going or winding down or, you know, the empty nest, um, you know, your life kind of gets smaller. At least your dispersion gets smaller and things are focusing more in on where you are because at midlife you can look back at half of life and then look forward you're just kind of in the middle uh, when you're young you know the thing's kind of a wide open road it's more of an uh, you know clear palette it's not cluttered with a lot of stuff so some of this you know like we're talking about uh, you know purifying gold uh, at this part in midwife al alchemy is a great metaphor uh, for some of these things, these long experiences, that we need to be unbound from them. Uh, and we had to be a certain way for a certain amount of time, uh, but at a different stage, a different way of approaching ourselves and the world is needed. And it can be hard to extract ourselves from years of experience and decades of habit, uh, especially when we've relied on these things uh, and like you're talking about somebody rushing and trying to get a Corvette or some, you know, recapturing something of the youth, there's actually some, a kernel of truth to that. Uh, instead of trying to turn back the clocks and getting all the, you know, surgeries and the cars and the, you know, the clothes and really trying to be somebody you're not, uh, that's one version of what is really actually needed. And that's recovering that passion, that fire uh, that maybe you had in youth um, towards something that uh, something can be new again, this beginner mind or a child heart uh, that you, know, you get disillusioned after years and years. So it's to recapture that, but you're doing it in a way, not in a way that you would have done in your twenties, but in a way that suits you now. 
Uh, and that's how you can recover this gold, this fire, fires again, this passion, and this you know drive to do things. Uh, and how can how can you be fresh again after you know fifty five years of you know ups and downs and life being thrown at you? Some version of that, you know, if you live that long, that's where that's where we all end up, uh, you know, to experience. Uh, how can you then be become fresh again without turning backwards or, like I said, trying to fit in clothes that, that maybe don't uh, suit you at this point? And that's that alchemical process uh, and taking on the role of being an alchemist. And maybe you cut some things off, uh, your attachments to the past. Maybe uh, you take things that have become like so hardened in your life, an attitude or a a memory or a pain, uh, resentment, uh, some some wrong that somebody did to you that can become calcified and uh, you know, hardened in your life, and it can make you stuck. And alchemy brings in well, then you bring saludio, which is solution. So you bring in water as you would to dissolve something that had become crystallized. Then it can flow more freely and then in this free state uh, be maybe recrystallized into a, a new form as you build this Philosopher's Stone uh, recipe. Uh, so it's very practical. And I think there's a, a whole, it's more than just a metaphor. I mean, and these are really, you're actually doing these things um, with these parts of your, of your life. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where it's like, it, you, when you put yourself into the idea or into the role, into the role of the alchemist, that idea of you as, as an alchemist of your own life. The other thing that's exciting about it, I mean, you know, you, the, I guess about the I idea of sort of alchemy in my mind is this idea of experimentation. In other words, like a, you know, an alchemist or, or, you know, someone doing, you know, experiments with chemicals and so on. There's, you know, there's not this, there's no really judgments on what happens. Like, in other words, you, you know, you don't try and put this solution with that solution and it doesn't work. So you, you know, you get, you know, you beat yourself up and say, oh, what an idiot. I shouldn't have done that. You just try something else. That's one of the exciting things about, you know, being an, an alchemist of your own life is that that spirit of, of experimentation can return. And then, you know, you, you can actually, uh, try things out without uh, all the hang-ups and the baggage that you used to carry around and all these worrying about what your friends are going to think or worrying about what the world's going to think and that's one of the beauties of of aging if you can take that that maturity and start you start to realize that like, it doesn't mean anything what other people think of what you're doing as long as you're not hurting other people you know, if you're, what you want to do is, is, is your business, as long as it, as long as it's not, you know, destructive to other people or to the environment or to, you know, to, to other living creatures and so on. Um, you know, so within those bounds, I mean, we're, we're, we're free, you know, we have, we have an amount of freedom and that's, that's the beauty of, you know, alchemists are also, you know, somewhat thought of as being somewhat eccentric. You know, and that, you know, if you can embrace that, that creativity, that sort of idea of eccentricity in a positive way, um, you know, being, you know, being your own true self and following, you know, you know, your true, true will within yourself, the true will that you have, that's another idea. Um, you know, and that's something that, 
you can recover and extract out very delicately through the alchemical process. You talked about extracting out that passion, you know, and you kind of, what you're doing in a sense is like you're, you know, you're, you're sort of re recovering it from, you know, it's stuck down in this material. It's in this salty, earthy kind of inertia place. It's stuck, you know, it, it, and we talked about, and actually check, check out our last week's podcast as well about Lot's wife and the, the pillar of salt idea. It's exactly analogous to what we're talking about. Uh, you know, you can't look back uh, for for movement forward, you can't look back to the past and be, uh, you know, be overly identified with who you used to be or who, you know, who other people think you are. And so on. you have to embrace the creativity and the uniqueness of who you actually are as a as an individual self and come into your full selfhood at this point in time. And that's what alchemy, that's another thing that alchemy does. Uh, so so valuable stuff and powerful stuff. And we are uh, very excited about this one. So if you get a chance, do check out Initiates of the Flame and do look at this mystery of the alchemist. I'm gonna turn it back over to you. We'll probably wrap it up now. What, uh, do you have any other thoughts or anything that's pressing that I think that maybe we missed? Um, well, to keep in mind also that you know, the great alchemist is the divine one that rules the universe. You know, God, the ultimate reality, um, the oneness, um, that it is a teacher. Uh, he all talked about the great book of nature. Um, nature may not be everything, but it contains everything in it. It is part of this universe uh, that's beyond us. So to become an alchemist and really take this on, uh, you are involving yourself in a much larger world much deeper, uh, much more intelligent, more loving, and deeply connected world that we are all part of. But you gain membership. You become <laughs> this initiate. Uh, you are brought into that through your own will and your own decision uh, and your dedication. And when you're doing that, then you're using forces of nature. You're using principles of the universe uh, that are beyond the laws and rules of man and earth. You are part of this brotherhood, this deeply connected, larger, larger than life, larger than you, but you are part of it. So you are an alchemist and you are working with the grand alchemist. And that's really the only way you can elevate from lead to gold. If you stay in the world of lead, you're probably going to get more lead, or it might be very polished lead. You are involved with these larger forces of the psyche of the universe within and without, many of them unseen, but nonetheless as true as gravity is unseen, but we experience it every day. And by having this partner, yes, you may be pulled out from the world. And one of the things, you know, we talk about alchemists working in secrecy or you know, in the basement or the laboratory or something like that. Um, as you're doing this work, it is probably good to keep it to yourself. Uh, I think you can share with others who are doing maybe similar work, but your work is your work. And you don't want it tainted with somebody else's opinion. 
find within yourself, you know, listen for those voices, not the ones around you, but the ones within you. And you are part of this great universal power, the grand alchemist, and you are the apprentice and taking on the transmutation of your own life. Beautifully put, thank you, man. Uh, so for further information, uh, like we said, you can check out some of our uh, previous podcasts, The Hermetic Marriage and The Anatomy of the Soul um, and The Alchemy One that we did way back when. Uh, also, do check out Edinger's book, E-D-I-N-G-E-R, Ed, e Edinger. Uh, he was a, a famous Jungian uh, from Los Angeles uh, who wrote Anatomy of the Soul, and it is the, it is the process we were talking about, mortificatio, saludio, sublimatio, et cetera, and he puts them in this seven-step process and really breaks it down and shows you symbolically how this works. Great stuff. Of course, Jung's work, uh, Psychology and Alchemy, genius, absolute genius. Um, anything else you can think of off the top of your head? Uh, of course, this initiates of the flame, Manly Hall's work, and a lot of Manly Hall's work uh, deals with these, these alchemical subjects as well. There's, there's great sections in Secret Teachings as well on alchemy, right? Yeah, and the, uh, the hermetic marriage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that's hermetic. available. Some of these are out of print. Uh, as we go on with this and do more Manly Hall stuff, I hope to republish uh, some of these works uh, that we talk about. So you can come directly to us or oh. at least be a way to get them so they're yes. available and accessible. Exactly. And I was going to mention that. You have a great uh, video up. It's... Uh, it's on the subject of alchemy. It's called, uh, what's, what's the title of that one? The, Al the alchemy one that you have up on the Manly Hall Society on YouTube? It's the Alchemy of Transformation or something like that. Is that the title yeah, of it? Transformation of Attitudes. I think there's... That's it. Yeah. I was just listening to that one. That's a great, that's a, that's a great audio. That's a great audio. Uh, but continue. I'm sorry. Hmm. No, I think that's it. That's... Uh, that, okay. Yeah, those are good, good ones to go. So yeah, so check out uh, Chris's Manly Hall, uh, a Manly Hall Society on YouTube. He's got great, great uh, audios up there. Some, most uh, that other people uh, have, have not posted and they're beautifully restored. Great work on that stuff, Chris. Uh, so subscribe to that and check that out. Um, all right, well, I think that's gonna do it for us today. Thank you guys for joining us. And thank you again for those of you who are supporting. We're at anchor.fm slash cosmic eye. If you'd like to support, thank you, Chris. Great stuff. Thank you. Great topic for today. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so be the alchemist. Be the alchemist of your life and transmute those uh, lead experiences into gold and, uh, and get in alignment with the great alchemist. The great alchemist will lead you where you need to go. Um, check us out at CosmicEye.org. Chris's book is The Spirit in the Sky. Mine is If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. Uh, thank you again. We'll be back next week. Goodbye and God bless.